Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message, and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. The Manifold Wonder of Law. I don't know if you guys remember a message a few weeks ago called The Manifold Wonder of Grace. And then before that, there was a message called Law and Grace. I seem to be in a little series. Eric isn't known for giving series. And you'll notice that I also speckled a few different messages in between all of them. So, but if you combine them together, this is a very interesting three-part series. And one of the greatest misunderstandings, I would say, even in the church today, is the concepts of law and grace. A lot of us look at law with a sneer. And we look at grace with a delight, which there's reason for that. And it's because the law is enunciating our conviction. It is, it is enunciating to us that we are wrong. However, that work of law is, ironically, part of the work of grace. It is God's love that is expressing to us our need of a Savior. And if we didn't have the law, we would never have been awakened to the fact of the work of the Messiah and our need for that work. And so the law is not a negative, it just happens to be associated with the negative. Because in the New Testament, when it says we are now no longer under law, but under grace, it's like, well, praise God, we're not under law anymore. But that is the sentence of law. The law is righteous. The law is perfection. What it enunciates is the actual character and behavior of one known as Jesus Christ. And so we don't spurn the law, we understand the law's position. And so in this message, this is a hard message to give. This is an unusual message. But in this message, I want us to begin to understand the grandeur of the law, not so that we can go back under it, but so that we can fully appreciate what it means to live under grace. When you stare square into the law, it shows you the person of Jesus. He is the law made flesh. He is the perfect enunciation of God's righteousness on this earth. And we can actually behold the living God by staring square into the law. This is how God behaves. This is how God does things. This is how God thinks. This is how God acts. And so we can actually become acquainted with God. And as a result, recognize how unlike God we are. Something's wrong with us. We're twisted. We're perverted. The law exposes the fact that we are wrong with the law. We are not like the nature of God. We are not righteous. And the law helps us see that. And then it says, and just so you know, the law, if you violate this great nature, this righteous nature of God, the law also stipulates the consequence. You sin or you violate this perfect law, you die. Well, I know that that doesn't sound like a good thing, but that's actually a wonderful thing for us to recognize is that We are sentenced to death, and there's a condemnation that weighs over us, which then leads us to cry out, What must I do to be saved? So, the manifold wonder of law. Let's just begin to explore this. First, we're going to start with the manifold wonder of God. The word manifold, if you remember a few weeks ago, I I went through it. It's basically a variegated coloring, almost 
the way I'm going to liken it is almost like a rainbow. It is multiple colors, various shades, various tones of one whole. When you look at a rainbow, you wouldn't just say a rainbow is uh, indigo. I picked sort of an obscure color in it. But you wouldn't say it's all indigo. No, it's rainbow. It's, it's all sorts of different colors and shades in between. It's a rainbow. And so rainbow in itself could almost be considered a color. That's sort of like God. The manifold wonder of God. God has different colors, different attributes. He's not just one thing. A lot of people say, well, God's love. Well, that's true. God is love. But did you know that God is holy? Did you know that God is righteous? Did you know that God is just? There are all sorts of attributes to God. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is immutable. All of these things are still true. Do we just take one element of God's nature and say that's who he is? Is love, for instance, one of the common statements in Christianity today is that love now trumps all his other behavior attributes from the Old Testament. And now he is love, whereas before he was a variegated color scheme, sure. But now he's just love, and love covers over all things. Well, God is love, and guess what? He always was love. He is eternal in his nature and his character, and before time uh, even began, before the foundations of the earth were laid, he was love. And so that isn't an add-on property, an attribute to God, where he's like figuring out, you know what, I haven't been the nicest guy here so far. I need to upgrade myself. And so he sends forth his son to die on the cross, and now God is bequeathed with the attribute of love. He's always been love. He's always been holy. He's always been righteous. He's always been perfect. These things didn't alter. There is nothing in history that has ever changed God. God is who he is, as we will soon explore. So the manifold wonder of God, the variegated nature of God. Genesis 9, I do set my bow in the cloud. This is after the flood. The earth has been destroyed. Judgment has come. Why? Because the law has been violated. The law is violated. What is the law? Well, we will explore it. It's the nature of God. It's the perfect righteousness of God. Something's been violated, and justice has been served. Judgment has come upon the earth. And what does God stick in the sky but a rainbow? Now, most of us, it's just sort of a kid's story. You know, we don't really think about how that would affect our life. But God chose a rainbow, a bow in the clouds, a variegated symbol of covenant, This is who I am. And he puts his seal. You know that God does not need to give us any promises? He does not need to give us any assurances. He's God. Why does he need to come down to our level and make a promise to us? But he does. And he sticks a symbol of it in the sky to say, I will never do this again. I will never destroy the earth by means of a flood. Now, to some of us, we're like, what does that matter? It's a symbol of covenant. God didn't need to give it to us. He gave it to us. And he gave us a symbol. And what is a symbol? It's a symbol of variegated color. This is the nature of God, symbolized, to say, I do not change. This is who I am. Do you know that a rainbow still has the same color schemes today as it did back then? 
It's, it's a symbol of God. It's a symbol of covenant. It's a symbol of promise. God does not alter. God is who he is, and you can take him at his word. Even though he made that promise way back in the day, we're talking thousands upon thousands of years ago. Do you know that he is not altered in that promise? He still maintains it. He does not lie. He has not changed. He is not altered. He is immutable is the term. He does not change. There is no shadow of turning in him. So I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Why God even condescends to give us this covenant is an amazing statement. But he does, and he enters into covenant with men. And he sticks his symbol of covenant, and it's a bow. It's a rainbow. Genesis 9, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh, and the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. So, even though God may get mad and may want to bring judgment on something, you know that what he'll look upon? He'll look upon that rainbow, and that will cause him to remember. Okay, now let's fast forward to the cross. You know what the cross does? The cross has given us an access into another symbol of covenant, the blood of Christ. And though we are deserving of judgment, and though our behavior may not be in accordance with the perfect nature of God, when God looks upon us, there is a covenant that has been made. And it is actually an unchanging covenant that is in his blood and it is sealed in his blood. And when God looks upon that, he actually remembers his covenant. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. In Ezekiel, we have a symbol of God on his throne. And what's interesting is the description of God. When you actually see God below his waist, it seems to be a flame of fire. But then there seems to be around his throne, it's mentioned multiple times in scripture, a rainbow. In other words, the symbol of God's nature, what he looks like, seems to be this variegated color scheme. And so when he makes a covenant, what does he do? He sticks his thumbprint on it. This is me. And do you know who I am? I am unchanging. When I make a promise, I mean it. This is God. It's his symbol. A rainbow. I know that's like a little girly symbol, you know, with you need to have butterflies with it. But this is serious stuff in heaven. This is the symbol of God, his variegated color scheme, his nature, which does not alter. It never has altered. It is always the same. And he that sat, this is speaking of God, was to look upon like a jasper and sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Okay, so all I'm doing is I'm saying this is a symbol of God, this rainbow. This unchanging, unalterable declaration of his manifold presence. He is who he is, and this is who he is. And that color scheme has never altered. He is. Motive. What is a motive? Now, have you ever noticed that the words automotive and locomotive actually have the word motive in it? It's a word that defines movement. Okay, that's why automotive and locomotive actually, locomotive 
actually simply means an, item, an animal that could move from one place to another or a thing that could move from one place to another. So when they came up with this thing called the train, they called it a locomotive. It could actually take something from one place to another. And so an animal is different than a plant in that it's a locomotive, in that it actually can move around. They both are living, but a plant's stationary, whereas an animal is locomotive. I thought that was fascinating. And so motive is this concept of that which causes movement, that which causes action. Okay, what is our motive? We as humans have a motive for why we do what we do. And our motive is wrong. God has a motive. I almost called this message the motive of God. God has a motive. He has something that moves him, something that causes action. So that which causes motion, that which incites to action, that which determines the choice or moves the will. A motive. Now I'm going to dig a little deeper into this. Praorizo. Okay, big word. Praorizo. Typically translated in the Bible as predestination. Whoa, Eric, no way are you actually going to make a comment on this. It's a harmless word. Okay, it's just a word in the Greek. Praorizo which means the predecision, the predetermination, the eternally established inner wiring of the will, that which is set and hardened long ago. Okay, now, one of the things that gets people off in the whole predestination thing is dealing with our eternal destiny. However, one thing that is very clear, that is not debatable, is that God, in his motive, is praorizo. It is set, it is established, He is who he is. He is never going to change who he is. You know that God's motive was established before the foundations of the earth? He's never altered. He's eternal in his motive. His motive is set. It is fixed. He is who he is. He's going to accomplish that which he's going to accomplish. And nothing is going to cause that interference. He will accomplish it. Praorizo. Predetermined. Now this is a very interesting concept. And I'm not going to teach on predestination, because even the word predestination is somewhat misleading. It means a predetermination. It is a determination ahead of time. In other words, God's saying, I am who I am, and I will accomplish this. So you know that he predetermined to rescue us? He predetermined it. Because of his motive, as we will explore, is that. His motive is life, and to bring life in abundance. You know the enemy has a motive? The enemy has a motive, and you know what's happened to Lucifer? His motive is set, just like God's motive is set. And so the kingdom of darkness is predictable, just like the kingdom of light is predictable. They are set. They are fixed. Praorizo would apply just as well to the kingdom of darkness as it does to the kingdom of light. They are set in their disposition, in their determinations. They know where they're headed, and they're headed there no matter what. The set motive. So I'm going to call praorizo the set motive. It is the course of action. It is the direction. It is the impetus of soul. And it is headed somewhere. And that is set. Praorizo, the set motive, the established motive. Now here's the difference between the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light, and you. You do not have a hardened or set motive when you are born. You are malleable in your motive. And as a result, there is a season of your life 
in which there is an opportunity for your motive to be converted and to be changed. But if you harden in that motive, you are eternally hardened in that motive. So the set motive, the praorizo, it's the guaranteed, wholly predictable, never shocking behavior, altogether always in perfect congruence with the revealed nature. Okay, so what I'm saying is God is praorizo, or he has a set motive. Therefore, if you ever, this is a common thing I'll say. Someone gives me a story and I'll say, sounds like God. Yep, yep, that's God. That's God, all right. Well, what, uh, what else I'll say is classic enemy. Well, how would I define classic enemy? It's because the enemy is predictable. The enemy always does that. Well, I could have told you ahead of time, even before he tempted you like that, that he would. How would I know that? Because praorizo. It's predetermined. He's already established his motive. He's already about no good. He is about unrighteousness. He is about death and darkness and destruction. He is fixed in his motive. As it says in John 10, we'll read it in just a second, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. How could Jesus say that so cavalierly as if he just knows it? Because it's praorizo. It's already set. He's already established his motive. He knows what the thief is up to. It's not like Jesus said, well, let's pray for the thief. He may be converted. The thief is set. God is set. Their motives are set. Yours is hanging in the balance. And as a result, you have two kingdoms at war over your motive, over your action, over that which is the impetus of your soul to define the course of your existence. So the set motive, it's that which is predictable. It's guaranteed. I know how God's going to work. And you could say, that's, that's an awful big assumption, Eric, that you could know how God is going to behave. Well, it's not that I just came up with my opinion on how he would behave because of my vast observation skills that I've used throughout my 42 years on this earth. No, it's because the word of God reveals the praorizo of God. And you know that the word of God also reveals the praorizo of the enemy? You know that I can know actually what the enemy's up to? I can know what his agenda is. I can know what his end game is. And do you know that I can know what God's purpose is? And and it sounds I know way too big because God is so vast compared to me. He revealed it so that we would know it. He wants us to know the praorizo. He wants us to know his set motive. He's not playing games with us. He's not changing on a whim and saying, you know what, I was this way back then, but now I'm this way. He's always been this way. Get to know your God. The word of God is what introduces us to the praorizo of God. What do we see when we see the praorizo of God? We see that something's wrong with our motive. You see, God's motive is perfect. Our motive is not like God's motive. And when we, when we begin to see God's motive, you'll understand that. God is not selfish. He's not self-centered. We are. Our motive is to promote us. And God's is to not promote us. You can definitely see that something's wrong with our motive. It's not like God's. The guaranteed behavior, the praorizo, you can actually have confidence in God's behavior. You know what that's called in Scripture? I know, brace yourselves for this big word. Faith. 
What is your faith in? The guaranteed behavior. The prarizo, when you go through Ellerslie, you understand it as fact. Revelation. God's word. It doesn't alter. The word of God isn't changing. That's because God, if it's his word, doesn't change. And if God doesn't change and then he gives his word, guess what? His word doesn't change. And you can know the guaranteed behavior of God. And what does that cause you to do? Put confidence in it. Oh, yeah, my God's faithful. What does faithful mean? Faithful means he's proven that his behavior is guaranteed over and over and over again throughout all history. It's guaranteed. The prarizo, his set motive can be known, and it's a guaranteed behavior. So here's Jesus in John 10.10. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Whoa. Jesus just laid out the prarizo, why he's even come. I mean, couldn't you make it a little more mysterious, Jesus? Make us guess at it? He just sort of lays it out. No, no. I'm going to tell you why I came. I came that you may have life and that more abundant. Does that sound like the God that you know? The God that's always after you, bringing conviction, making you miserable because you're having too much fun in this world? God came to bring life and that much more abundant? This is confusing. Doesn't sound like most of the type of God that we've been hanging around. Most of us have been miserable. However, look at the thief. His motive is also known. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. Hmm. Well, guess what? That's what the thief is up to. Don't mix God with the thief. It doesn't say that God comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Who comes to steal, kill, and destroy? The thief. The thief is not God. I don't know if any of you guys have ever figured that out. The thief and God are two different. There are two kingdoms. You know that God did not sponsor the formation of the thief. He did not wind him up like a toy and set him forth so that he could be the contrast. He is in rebellion against God and God's agenda, God's motive. The prarizo of darkness, to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, I have a, a line underneath this that is going to start to unpack where we're going with this. Look at this line. To break the law. The prarizo of darkness, the set motive of darkness, is to violate the nature of God. It can't help it, by the way. It is against the nature of God. It breaks the law. It's called the spirit of lawlessness. It violates the law just by existing. It is against the nature. Okay, so the prarizo of darkness, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. If you notice, if you know the Ten Commandments, you'll know that the, to steal, kill, and destroy seem to fall well within the bounds of that which would violate what God prescribed, even with his own finger, to his nation. The prarizo of light, to bring life and that more abundant. Now look at this little sub thing that I stuck under this one. To fulfill the law. You see, Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't just keep the law. The fact that he was known as sinless, that he had no sin, there was no guile in his mouth, meant that he kept the law. However, he didn't just keep the law, he fulfilled all righteousness. 
There is a requirement of the Messiah. This is the way God is. This is the way God must behave. This is the way God will be when he comes to this earth and he's Emmanuel, God with us. He must be exactly like this. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. Everything that must be to be right. Everything that must be to be in alignment with the revealed word of God. He fulfilled it perfectly. He fulfills the law. So the prarizo of light to bring life and that more abundant. To fulfill the law. Now this is an interesting twist. You think about this. How do we deal with the law as a Christian? You know, we get all squirmy. It's like, well, I'm not under the law anymore. Well, that's right. You're under grace when you come to Jesus Christ. However, what is the law? Well, the law is the perfect enunciation of the character, the behavior, the nature of God Almighty. What do you think his agenda is in your life? It's the prarizo. It's predefined. It's to fulfill all righteousness. His desire is to make you into an image bearer. One that actually showcases his nature, his behavior here on earth. So the law isn't just disregarded. It's fulfilled in us. Well, how does that work? Well, that's the gospel. That's the gospel at work. Because the prarizo of God has been set and established. And we have violated it. I don't know if you figured that one out yet. But we have gone against his agenda. We have gone on our own reservation. In fact, we've joined up with the agenda of the prarizo of darkness. Something's wrong because we are violating the law at every turn. We are not fulfilling the righteousness of God. We are unrighteous. Whoa. We're on the wrong side of the law. The law. That which God gave in order to reveal that man's motive is wrong. You see, God didn't have to give the law. He gave it to show and to reveal something, and that is that something's wrong with you. You know that without the law, you can't see that? You think you're just fine. But what the law does is it reveals to a man's soul his motive to clarify the just punishment for a wrong motive and to woo man's soul to repentance before man's wrong motive becomes set and no longer fixable. The law has a job to do. The law is not God necessarily. It reveals truth. The law showcases who God is. And the law is working in us to awaken us to the fact that we are wrong There is a just penalty for our wrongness and it woos us to call out for a salvation that cannot come from ourselves. I need help. I'm under the law. You sin, you die. I'm dying. Eternally. Separated. That's what the law stipulates. Woe is me. It's called the bad news. The bad news is requisite to understand and unpack the good news. The good news is a response to bad news. Good news makes no sense if you don't have bad news. And the law is that which reveals the bad news. But ironically, the law isn't bad news. The law reveals the bad news. It's just already there. You see, the law is a helper. Just as the Holy Spirit is a helper, the law is a helper which leads us to Jesus. The law reveals our need for Jesus. So the law is not bad. It's not evil. It's perfect. It's righteous. Jesus fulfilled the law. He didn't scrap it. 
He didn't say, oh, we don't need righteousness anymore. Remember about God's nature? It's inviolable. It's forever. He was righteous in the beginning. He was love in the beginning. He was holy in the beginning. You know that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't forsake his righteousness? He didn't give up righteousness, and suddenly he's no longer righteous. The law is simply an enunciation of his righteousness, his behavior, his nature. The history of the law. This will be fascinating. History of the law coincides and correlates very well with the history of Israel. You know that God revealed himself to a people. And I know probably most of you know that, but it's very fascinating to know how he revealed himself. He revealed himself in stages, if you will. There are certain people that God would say, yeah, I didn't actually reveal myself to them, myself to them as this. You know me as this. But he never violates a previous revelation. Every previous revelation that you had of God, he added to. He augmented to. It's sort of like, oh, they knew indigo. That's the only color they knew of God. And then what does he do? He adds in red. They're like, whoa, it's always been there. But you weren't yet ready for it. You see, God is revealing his nature. And so what we have is the Israelites are in captivity. The, the, the Hebrew nation is in captivity. The, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they have found themselves, the 12 sons of Jacob, find themselves in captivity for 430 years. Jo- I'm sorry, Moses then is ri- risen up, built up by God to be the deliverer of this nation. At the 390th year, he is actually thinking himself ready But he takes it into his own hands, kills an Egyptian, buries him in the sand, finds out that it's been exposed, and he flees into the wilderness for 40 years. Now we're at the 430-year point. It says, after 40 years were completed, after they came to their end, on the first day of the 41st year, Moses is wandering on a hillside, and there's a bush, and it's a light with a flame of fire. And out of that bush comes a voice, the very voice of God. And God speaks to a man named Moses, who becomes the rescuer and the deliverer of a nation. And God reveals his nature to Moses at another level. Which is interesting, because even in Moses' writing of the first books of the Bible, he is leveraging the full revelation that he has to write from the very beginning, in the beginning. He knows, because he has actually had a revelation from Almighty God which is the very basis of the entire word of God. So look at this statement. God was, is, and always will be. This is what God is actually revealing to Moses. Who is it that I will say has sent me? What is your name? And what does God say to him? I am. Now, that's our translation. Exodus 3, and Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. That is one of the funniest responses, by the way. I am that I am. However, our, it's very hard to stick that in English. Okay, let's just get that out on the table. It's very hard to stick what God is saying on the table. But what he is saying is, I've always been, I am, and I always will be. I'm God. Any questions? 
I don't alter like you. I am pre-existing. I am eternal. I am immutable. I do not change like you. I am that I am. And he said, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. That's a strange name. However, what this becomes the basis of for all the Hebrew nation is something known as the name Yehovah. Yehovah flows out of the I amness of God. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thou shalt... Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever. What an interesting statement. This is my name forever. I am immutable and unchanging. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. The word memorial is this is how I will be remembered unto all generations. This is not a small moment in history. God is literally making a declaration. He's revealing another dimension of the rainbow. He's saying, I will always be this way. I always have been. But this is who I am. Why is he doing this? He's establishing something. You know what the law had not been given yet? The law was not yet given, but the revelation of God to undergird the law was very important. Because who delivered the law? Moses. You see, Moses is getting a a dimension of understanding of the nature of God. And that is that God is... And he always has been this way, and he always will be, which is the concept known throughout Christian history as immutability, unchangeableness. God does not alter. God does not change. He is who he is. He always has been and always will be. So to be, Jehovah. I know that sounds strange. To be, God is. To be, that's who he is. He is the God that is. He always has been. He wasn't created by the hands of men, by the imaginations of men. He is. He is who he is. How do you say that in any other way? It's just so funny. Jehovah. That's how you say it. Immutable, unchanging, eternal one. He is. He is Jehovah. This name was considered to signify God as eternal and immutable, who will never be other than the same. The God who is, who was, and who will always be the same. So the God of set motive. So when we're talking about motive, you need to recognize that God is. His motive is. What is God's motive? Is he coming up with a new one? No, it's set. It's been set always. He is. He's always intended this. This is who he is. This is what drives him. This is what moves him to action. He has never violated that. He has never been other than he is. So, this is the God that is. He is guaranteed, wholly predictable, never shocking with his never shocking behavior, altogether always in perfect congruence with the revealed nature. Now, it may be shocking to us, but that's because we don't know his word. When we know his word, it's no longer shocking because that's just who he is. He's revealed it. He is who he is. He's always been that way. His will is able to be known from before the foundations of the world. He is fixed, set, resolute, immutable, unchanging, and without shadow of turning. Now, that's sort of a scary thing if you don't know what his nature is like. So imagine if you find out that God is, and he always will be. And he has a set motive, a prarizzo. It is established. 
gulp. I hope it's a good one. Because it's not changing and it's God. You know, you can change. He doesn't change. I am the Lord. I do not change. Gulp. So what is his nature? Because whatever his nature is, is set. Now, do you see how this is establishing a foundation for the Jewish nation? See, what you have is God saying, I am that I am. And then what is Moses' assignment? I mean, we're not talking very long later when they're exiting Egypt and in the wilderness and God is giving them something, his law. What is he giving them? He's answering this question. But what is the nature of the I am? But what is he like? How does he behave? Well, he's going to tell you how he behaves, and what are they going to find out? They don't behave as he behaves. See, God is taking his first step forward, or his next step forward, I should say, in the establishment of the making ready of people to receive the Messiah, to receive the need. You see, God has a motive, but he is building this throughout history and establishing his building blocks so that a people would be ready to receive. The same building block he's doing in us right now. He's saying, I am who I am. And then you say, what are you that you are? How are you? What do you do? How do you do it? Who are you, God? He says, I'll tell you who I am. If God has a set motive, then what is his set motive? What is his will? What is his predictable behavior? What is he guaranteed to do? The God of Revelation. So I'm not talking about the book of Revelation, the very final book in the Bible. I'm talking about the fact that God is a God who reveals himself. It's just sort of a strange, fascinating fact about who God is. Part of who he is is that he reveals himself. He is knowable. He wants to be known. Isn't that fascinating? God desires to be known. And so he reveals himself. He actually wants to answer that question. But God, what is your nature? He says, I'm glad you asked. He is a God who reveals himself. The God of revelation. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever. So this is Moses talking. Something has been revealed. What has been revealed? The nature of God. So, but that which has been revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. You see, God is revealing something. This is right after the law has been given, after, at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness. The law has been given, and the people of Israel are recognizing the justice of our God. They're recognizing the holiness of our God. They're recognizing the righteousness of our God. They're recognizing the perfection of our God. If you violate this law, you know what? There is severe punishment. They're beginning to recognize another layer, another color of the manifold wonder of God is actually being exposed. And they're beginning to see, whoa! God, you are holy. Do you know what this is the exact time when the concept of a holy God began to emerge in the Hebrew mind? It's the exact time. How did they know it? From the law. It's the exact time that the righteousness of God became evident to the people of Israel. Well, how did they know it? Well, through the law. You see, the law showed the nature and the behavior of God. It revealed darkness and light. It separated the two and says, this is right, this is wrong. And so, well, I'm behaving wrong. Uh-huh. That's right. You are behaving wrong. That's your problem. So what do I do about it? Well, you need to sacrifice. There must be blood. A preparation is being made to recognize the importance, the significance of a Messiah. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing 
by the word of God. So how do you know, remember we talked about faith being the confidence in the guaranteed prarizo uh, of God, his behavior, his guaranteed behavior. Well, how do you gain faith? So then faith cometh by hearing. Well, you have to hear about the way he is, his nature. You have to know it. Well, how do, how do you know it? By hearing of the word of God. Not just hearing anything, but the re- revelation that God has given. When you know the revelation, you know what is guaranteed. You know the prarizo of God, and you stake your confidence on that. Exodus 6.3. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, Elohim. But by my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them. Isn't that just a strange statement? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know him as I am? Do you recognize the privilege we have in not just knowing him as I am, but as the Holy One, and as the righteous lawgiver and the just judge who punishes the God of wrath who actually has indignation towards sin and he always will throughout all of eternity. You know how amazing it is that we know what we know? That we have had a a privilege to not just know that, but then to know the revelation of God and the full rainbow in Jesus Christ. The full rainbow of God, the one who sits enthroned on high, was revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. But there's more. It's not just that he's righteous. It's not just that he's a lawgiver and he's a law punisher if you violate it, and he's a just judge, and he's perfectly righteous. You know, there's more to the nature of God. There's more color in that rainbow. The God who is holy. Now, in a very simplistic way, we're going to deal with holiness and righteousness, okay? We could do an entire series on those. But the God who is holy, and I'm going to just say it this way, he's unlike the darkness. You know that there is no... Need for the word holy if there's no such thing as darkness and sin? There's no need for it. Why? Because God is, and it's pretty obvious who he is. However, there is a battle. And so what was needed is for the clarification of the nature of God in contrast with the nature of that which is unholy. Holiness is merely a statement of that which is other than. And so the world became other than God. Sin entered into it. And as a result, God had to clarify, he is not like the world. He is holy. In fact, he's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. Okay, so this is part of the revelation that comes from what? The law. You see, when the law comes, it clarifies, I am not like you. Do not come near this mountain. I am not like you. And if you come near this mountain, you will be struck down dead. Because you cannot enter the holy presence of God. And yet God has a motive. What is that motive? He could have just destroyed us all. But instead he descends and condescends. Even though they can't touch that mountain, he still comes to that mountain to commune and to be near and to give them that which they need because his motive is more than just giving law. But he had to give the law so that they would understand the grace. Grace is unpacked and understood upon a building block, precept upon precept. If you remove the foundation stones of how God built his case with his nation, you lose the understanding of how God builds his case in our own souls. The God who is holy, he's unlike the darkness. Holy. Now, this is a different word for holy, W-H. Holy separate from darkness. 
Well, not anything like it. Not anything like it. I do not touch it. I am other than darkness. The Lord our God is holy. Do you know how we oftentimes will use the terms God is love? Well, what do you do with that scripture? Do we throw it out? The Lord our God is holy. That's just a fact of God's nature, God's attributes. You know that he never changes? He didn't lose his holiness. He didn't go down the drain. When Jesus died on the cross, they're like, oh, good. Whew. We finally were able to discard the holiness of God. Now we have a loving God. No, he was loving back then, too. When that statement was being made, you know that he was love? And so God is holy. That is a fact of his nature. It is a binding, eternal, immutable fact. He is holy. And even when you come to Jesus, you know that your God is still holy? He doesn't alter. He doesn't throw it out and say, oh, well, you know, my holiness is what was keeping me from you. No, your rebellion and your wrong motive is what was keeping you from him. Your sins actually caused a separation. And so God, who is righteousness, dealt with your sins in perfect righteousness. Perfect justice was established. And he took the burden on himself for your sin. So, holy. It means otherly. Not as the dark, but light. Not as the death, but life. Not as the lie, but truth. Not as the bad, but good. Not as the flesh, but spirit. Not as sin, but righteous. Not as dishonest scales, but just and equitable. Not as a wave of the sea tossed to and fro, but unchanging. Not as self-centered, but love. Not as lawlessness, but as the perfect fulfillment of the law. Otherly. Always and eternally otherly. Never for one moment is he not otherly. But rather he is trifold otherliness, wholly separate from darkness and untouched by its stain. One of the things we talked about, I think it was in the message of law and grace, is the issue of, it says that God created darkness. Well, what, what does that mean? The term for created is to cut out. God is. All of this is his. And yet when darkness entered... He cut out a space in all of who he is, and he separated it from himself as a statement of his holiness. I am not like that. That will forever be separate from me. And then he revealed to us how the darkness is not in agreement with him and how we are in agreement with darkness. We are separated from him. However, our motive is not set, and therefore the law is given to convict us of our wrongness. So that we could see the rescue of Jesus. So his holiness isn't necessarily that which comes to rescue us. His holiness is who he is. And to have interaction with us, we must understand his holiness. The cross enunciates it. The cross is because he is a holy God. It's not an eradication of his holiness. It is a bringing us into his holiness. Legally without a violation of his nature, because he cannot violate his nature. The God who is righteous. So we say God is love, and now maybe you're convinced that God is holy. But you know that God is righteous? Righteousness in the most simple sense, because I have entire teachings on righteousness. It's a great word. The lawgiver, the law keeper, the just and equitable judge. He is righteous. So therefore, he is the originator of law, because the law is his nature. So he's the lawgiver. Who would be better suited to be the lawgiver than the perfect one who fulfills the law? And he's the lawkeeper 
That's what righteousness would be. If you're going to be righteous, well, that means you're going to be as you ought to be, which is as God is. So God is righteous. Well, so do you need to be. If you're going to be righteous, you need to be as God is. How you doing? Yeah, we are unrighteous. We are not as we ought to be. But guess who is as, as we ought to be? Jesus. And what does he clothe us in? The cross has made available to us the very clothing. It's called the robe of righteousness. The, ra- way, the robe of the way God is. So that we can be enclosed in it and legally able to enter in to the throne room of grace. To partake, 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 sorry, to partake of that which we were unable to partake of before, which is grace. Because we violated his nature, we were at odds with grace. But a way has been made in and through his righteousness. It's not an eradication of his righteousness and the fact that he is perfect. The cross is the satisfaction of all righteousness. The fulfillment of all righteousness. To enable us to access grace. And he still has a motive. And that's to bring us life. And that more abundant. And to fulfill the law, not just in his son... But in us. So grace is not just a cheap way of living any way we want. That's not what the cross came to do. It came to establish holiness. Establish righteousness. Establish the very nature of God in us. The God who is righteous. Righteousness. Perfect in relation to the law. So how would we know the righteousness of God? Well, we need the law. So what the law does is it enunciates... How we are other than God. It shows his holiness. I'm not like that. I can't do this. And God goes, bingo. It's working. And then it establishes his behavior. It's like, so that's what God is like. You see, God doesn't give a law and then violate it himself. God fulfills the law. That's what he does. So he does not establish evil behavior. He does not lie and then say to you that you can't. He does not alter and change and say to you that you cannot be like a a wave tossed to and fro. He does not have unjust measures and then command you to have them. He is the nature of the law. It reflects him and he is never altered. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is holy. And the law explains that to us. O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous. So God is love, yes. But did you know that he's holy? And did you know that he's righteous? And did you know that he still is? That is not altered because of the cross. God is holy and he is righteous. And we're also very glad that he's love. Believe me, I'm not going to downplay that. You're going to see this. I'm going to build to that. Righteousness is as God is. He is unblurred light, eternal life, always truthful, perfectly good, always just, holy loving, with a perfect hatred for sin and a perfect love for that which is good, wholly unchanging, unblemished, without spot, and the perfect fulfillment of the law. What I just read was a description of Jesus Christ. I'll go through it again. Righteousness is as God is. He is unblurred light, eternal life, always truthful, perfectly good, always just, wholly loving, with a perfect hatred for sin and a perfect love for that which is good, wholly unchanging, unblemished, without spot, and the perfect fulfillment of the law. The law. See, I don't know if you're, the word's starting to warm uh, on you a little, and you're saying, you know, I actually don't mind that word anymore. I'm not trying to sell you on the notion that I want you under it. 
What I want you under is grace, if I'm going to encourage you as a pastor. However, to fully appreciate what you are under when you're under grace, and to walk in grace as God would have you walk in grace, you need to understand the holiness and the righteousness of God, which is not altered. It is not changed. He did not veer off course somewhere along the line and and say, you know what, I had this all wrong in the Old Testament. Let's just scrap all that law stuff, and let's just get down to loving and hugging and kissing. It isn't how it works. The law, that which brings light to the otherness, the holiness of God. The law, it enunciates the perfect righteousness or the law-keeping nature of God's behavior. He is otherly. The law clarifies, clarifies light from dark. Life from death. Truth from lie. Good from bad. Justice from injustice. Selfishness from love. Spirit from flesh and righteousness from sin. It exposes the fact that God is otherly from us and we are otherly from him. He is not like us. He is otherly. We are not like him. We are otherly from God. He is holy. We are unholy. We are not as we ought to be. We are unrighteous. How did we know that? From the law. So the law is not our enemy It is a schoolmaster is what what the Bible calls it. It is a teacher, a trainer, a helper, which leads us where? To Jesus. It leads us to the answer. It leads us to grace. The law is a schoolmaster. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. It says it right there. Did you read that? See, the law isn't trying to destroy you, to punish you. The law isn't some invention of the devil. The law is the enunciation of God. This is who he is, he says. And he said, if you violate this, well, then you're at odds with the law and you're under its penalty. And its penalty is just because the law is perfect. And you have violated the law, which means you sin, you die. You have the weight and the condemnation of eternal separation from God hanging over your soul. And it's just and it's right and it's good and it's equitable. However, God has a motive that goes beyond just holiness and righteousness. God is holy, and he is righteous. But there's more to this rainbow of who God is that defines who he is. And he's always been this way. He's always been set in his course. He has a determined gaze. The law exposes just consequence. The law says, you sin, you die. I think that's been a quote in three different sermons I've had now. It's a good one. Not a very happy one, but you sin, you die. That's the law of sin and death. And what law are you under? The law of sin and death. Well, that's because you sinned. You violated the perfect nature of God. Therefore, the just consequences expressed in the law is that you die. The wages of sin is death. Okay, so yeah, if you're going to go sin, that means justly, according to the law revealed by God, you die. Uh, I don't know that I like this too much, which is why we have a little animosity towards the law. Because the law has exposed our problem, but it wasn't the law that was the problem. It was us, sin, rebellion. And the only way we would know our sin is from the law. The law is not our enemy, the law is our helper. It depends on how we respond now. Because the law has justly declared to our soul the holiness and the otherness of God. The righteousness and the perfection of God's nature. And says, are you like this? We stand in a tribunal before the Godhead. And he says, can you match up to this life? 
Are you perfect with the law? And what is our confession? No. It's called confession of sin. We confess our sin. And we say, I am not as I ought to be. You are perfect. You are righteous. I am not. I justly deserve the consequences of this law. But is there mercy in the heart of the judge? Is there mercy in that rainbow? Is there mercy? You see, why is the good news so good? Because there is mercy in that rainbow. The cross is a picture of it. So the revelation that we get from the law, you've sinned, therefore you die. The law leads the sentenced sinner to the cross. So the law says, well, you must be righteous. The revelation that we get is, I, I, I can't do this. I am not like God. I am unholy and unrighteous. I am a sinner. What is a sinner? One who violates the law. I am a sinner. I am unrighteous and unholy. And so what is the cry? What must I do to be saved? Is there any hope? Is there any softness in that heart? Because I justly deserve the penalty of that law. I see it. I justly deserve it. But is there mercy? Is there love? Is there grace in that rainbow? What is the motive of our God? You know that it hasn't altered? God didn't suddenly get nice. God didn't suddenly have a moment of mercy. And he's like, you know what? I've been really hard on these people. He has always been who he is. If you think God is mercy and love, he's always been that way. Even when he was expressing his law, even when he was giving the revelation of his otherness and his holiness, and even when he was giving the clear commands and dictates of perfect righteousness, he was love and mercy the entire while. What does the cross reveal? You see, the law leads us to the cross. And what does the cross reveal to us? The cross reveals something that has been lost to us, and that is grace. You see, it's always been a part of God's nature. It's in the rainbow. It's always been his motive. His motive is to bring us life. However, we've been cut off from that life, and he needs us to know that that's a just cutting off. However, because he's just and he never violates his justice, because he's righteous and he never violates his righteousness, because he's holy and he never will violate his holiness, he can't just randomly forgive us. He can't just say, oh, look, you know, I know that you're at odds with the law, but I'll just overlook that. He cannot allow anything polluted into his presence. He scissor cuts a kingdom known as darkness, and he'll stick everything that is of a dark nature there. But God, because of his righteousness, because of his holiness, had to satisfy perfect holiness, had to satisfy perfect righteousness. What do you think the cross is? A lot of us think, it was unnecessary. God, if you're going to forgive me anyways, you see, forgiveness is part of the rainbow. You know that God forgives? He always has been that way. God is willing to forgive. However, there must be repentance. There must be a change of motive. There must be an awakening in the inner man. Because if we do not confess, if we do not turn, the forgiveness is not made available to us. God is merciful, but what if we reject his mercies? Then we do not receive them. I could stick a $20 bill on the stage and say it's yours, but if you don't come and pick it up, you don't have it. God is. He always has been. But you must accept. Remember the the statement we had it on our Christmas message? It was the concept of the innkeeper, and there's a need to receive the Son of God. The inn did not receive him. Yet Simeon received the Son of God up into his arms, picked him up, and embraced him. Son of God was there for the inn and for Simeon. The inn 
turned him out and said, we have no room. Simeon received him. Now, I'm not going to go into why the inn would close off and why Simeon would receive. We know that any of us that have come to receive the living God would give all credit to the living God for even giving us the grace to see our need. The law is an act of grace to awaken us to see. We as Christians wield the law. I know it sounds strange, but we wield the law to help explain the fact that the motive of the one in front of us is not in congruence and in accordance with God's motive. You're on the wrong side of the law, buddy. And this is not me saying it, it's God saying it. I'm merely passing it along because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so I'm responsible to bear that word in my delivery of the gospel. So the cross reveals grace. The cross says something. It says, believe and live. Remember what the law says? You sin, you die. The cross says, you believe, you live. You believe in my work of righteousness. You believe in my satisfaction of the justice of God. You believe that my cross is able to do it. And just like that rainbow in the sky, you can have a guaranteed promise and say, my God cannot lie. He is unchangeable. That promise will never leave. I put my confidence there. Because God himself makes it clear. He says, you believe, you live. Turn your focus here. Turn it to the cross. Do you see what I did? You are unrighteous, but I was perfectly righteous. The justice of God must be served. The wrath of God must be poured out. Instead of it being poured out on you justly, it had to be poured out. I poured it out on my own son. When you turn to his work on that cross... Then you enter in to the benefits of grace, which you have been cut off from. He is known as the way unto the Father. There is a way unto the Father that has been made through his blazing righteousness, through his blazing holiness, a way. But we must be sheltered in his blood. How do we gain access to that? By receiving the work of that cross as our own. And we turn upon it and we say, that's it. That's what saved me. Jesus and him crucified. That's where my confidence rests. Not in my ability to fulfill the law because I can't. But in his ability to fulfill the law. He did it. That's where I turn my confidence. I put my confidence in the guaranteed behavior of God. He did it. A bow in the sky over the cross. His nature, the emblem of who he is. He did it. So the revelation, my God has made a way for me to be saved. You stare to the cross, you say, my God has made a way. I am at odds and at enmity with my God. I have rebelled, I have sinned. It's clear, it's revealed to my soul. I am unholy and unrighteous and justly deserving of eternal separation. But my God has made a way because there's more colors to this rainbow. The set motive of our God has been revealed. Let's just go through this real quick. He was and is and is to come. He is eternal and unchanging. And because of that, anything he reveals is always. When he reveals himself as holy, guess what? You know that he is always holy. He is. He is the I am. He is Jehovah. That's why this must be layered in. God isn't altering and changing on a whim. He is. He is eternal and unchanging. I am that I am. And then he is the word of God. He has made himself and his purposes known. Which is an incredibly stunning and staggering understanding. He, didn't, he isn't just there. 
And he always has been who he is, but then we have no access to who he is. And we're guessing. He reveals himself to us. He is the word of God, not just in text, but then made flesh. That we would actually understand the motive of God. We would. Sheep. Imbeciles. Sinners. We would know it. He is the word of God. He has made himself and his purposes known. His name is called the word of God. So he is. And we know in the New Testament he is love. He is holy and he is righteous. We've established that. But you know that he is the word of God? And guess what? If he can't change, and he is, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, well, guess what the word of God is? It bears his nature. It is unchanging. It is perfect without spot or blemish. It is righteousness. It is holiness. It is everything he is. It's the rainbow of God, the manifold wonder of God. He is holy. He has no darkness in him. He is perfectly otherly. The Lord our God is holy. He is righteous. There is no flaw in him. He is perfectly and legally just and right. In all his doings, everything he's done, he does not do wickedness. He does not steal, kill, and destroy. He does that which he does in perfect justice. If he brings judgment, it is in perfect alignment with his nature. Never an aberration. He does not do anything of a dark nature. Never. There is no flaw in him. He is perfectly and legally just and right. O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous. God is the same. He changes not. In him is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The statement of law. So if law is going to make a statement to us, it comes up, grabs the microphone, and says, all right, this is the only thing I'm able to say. Okay, I can't say more than this. This is what I have been given to say. It's his little notes that he's been handed. God God eternally was, is, and always will be holy and righteous. You are other than he is and have violated his righteous nature. Therefore, you are under the just sentence of death and your due punishment is eternal hellfire. Thank you very much for giving me the time. And then law walks off. It's like, thank you, law. That's wonderful to know. However, law is doing something in you. It is showing you the justice of God. It is showing you the righteousness and the holiness of God to show you the otherliness of God. And the other list that you have towards God. You are not like him. The law of the Lord is perfect. What a statement. Did you just hear that? Let me read it again just in case you missed it. The law of the Lord is perfect. You know what that means? The word means without spot or wrinkle. Without blemish. The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. You know, we use the word converting a lot in Christianity. Yeah, they were converted. Well, what converts the soul? I know this sounds strange, because we'd say, well, Jesus, the good news. Well, actually, the law is perfect, converting the soul. It actually revives. It does something to awaken the soul to its need, which then the gospel is able to answer. You see, the law is a schoolmaster, which leads us unto Jesus. The statement of grace. So grace comes up, and we have not had access to grace We've been cut off from the grace of God because of our just sentence of violation that we've revealed in the law. So remember the statement of law, but imagine grace runs up, grabs the microphone and says, but, but, God is not merely holy and righteous. He is also love. 
You see, I've spent this whole time trying to, seemingly, I'm not trying to downplay love, but sort of saying modern Christianity has said God is love. Hey, he's not holy and righteous anymore. No, he is holy and righteous. So grace comes up and says God is not merely holy and righteous. Grace doesn't come up and say, oh, yeah, aren't we glad that holiness and righteousness are gone? That's the way a lot of us look at grace. No. God is not merely holy and righteous. He is also love. And though we were justly deserving of condemnation at the expense of his own person, he saw fit to humble himself and endure the terrible sufferings of a cross in order to bear the just sentence of death and the due punishment that was rightfully ours to bear. Grace. The statement of grace. He did it. But he perfectly fulfilled his holiness and his righteousness in doing it. He never altered anything in the rainbow. He is who he is. And the cross was justice. It was righteousness. It was holiness enunciated. God is. The rainbow shrouded it. It is God, the seal of his covenant. God did not alter his righteousness and his holiness or his law in bringing love to bear. But guess what? Love is interwoven into his motive. The prarizo of God, that rainbow of God, that manifold wonder of who he is in his person includes a brilliant streak of love, never altered. It is who God is. He is love. It's part of his nature. It is interwoven into the fabric of his person, his will. Every action that he performs is out of that. There is never an action that does not sprout and spring forth from love. Even the cutting off and the sending into outer darkness is a statement of love, justice, righteousness, holiness. Everything is an action of love. There is never a moment when he violates any one of his attributes. He does not step on one attribute to inflame another. He's not cancel out or turn it down for a little just so he can be a God of wrath. He is wrathful towards sin. And he will always, get this, always eternally be wrathful towards sin. That which hinders his motive from being established, he hates. And he is wroth with it. But he is not wroth towards righteousness. He is gentle and fatherly and shepherdly towards that which is righteous. And guess what we are clothed in? The righteousness of Jesus. So therefore, though he is a God of indignant wrath towards all that is dark and all that is sinful, we are allowed to enter his presence clothed in the great rainbow presence of the blood of Jesus. And when he looks upon us, he remembers the covenant that he made upon that cross in the blood of Jesus. And justice is not violated. Righteousness is not violated. The holiness of God is not in the least bit violated in the work of redeeming grace. The God of love, the God motivated to bring life. What is his motive? To bring life. He said it himself, but I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. That's always been his motive. Even when he was giving the law and even when he was sentencing in the law, do you know that it says if you violate the law, you have to stone the man? If this one does this, because it's a just sentence against darkness, He will always have a just sentence against darkness. 
That didn't change because of the cross. Do you know that if you do not find yourself cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, there is a just sentence against the unrighteousness in your life and the unholiness in your life, and it will be eternal. Because you did not find shelter. You did not receive the one who came to bring you grace. The God motivated to bring life. Luke 7. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spoke within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him. There is a sinner. We'll just call her that. She's a sinner. And she has come unto Jesus, and she has broken out. I don't remember. I think in this situation, she's just washing his feet, or crying, or weeping, or touching his feet. But there is a Pharisee that sees this, and he says, If Jesus knew what manner of woman this was, that she's a sinner... I mean, she, he would never allow her near. Listen to this statement. This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain, actually, this is continuous, sorry. And he said, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor, says Jesus, which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? What do you think he said? Of course, you may know the story. But if two debtors, one is forgiven 500 and one is forgiven 50, which one loves most? Well, our answer would probably be the same. Simon answered and said, well, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, this is Jesus talking, thou hast rightly judged. Wherefore, I say unto you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. You know that every single one of us is deserving of the same hell? And yet most of us might not realize that we are not the debtor that owes 50. We're the debtor that owes 500. We look around and we're like, oh, that person owes 500. I'm only 50. And yet, what does that do in our intimate relationship with God? It causes us to love little. Because we're forgiven little. How do you know that you're forgiven much? What do you need to stare at to recognize the vast forgiveness and the grace of God so that you never let it go? You cherish it with every fiber of your being. The law. You stare at the law and what does it do? It teaches and instructs your soul in the absolute need of the cross. I can't do it. I am a sinner. I'm the chief of sinners. And then where does it turn us? To the only one who can rescue the sinner. Love. That behavior which is absent of self-interest and wholly occupied with another's gain. It is absent of self-interest. See, a lot of people have this notion that God is all self-focused because he's about his own glory. He's about our highest good. You know what our highest good is? His glory. He he doesn't have self-interest. He wouldn't have come and died upon a cross if he had self-interest. God has suffered greatly to give. His motive is life, to be a life giver, to be selfless, and to pour out all the strength in his treasury. If he has anything, he dumps it. He gives it. He gives his life. The enemy's a hoarder. He takes, he steals, he robs, he destroys. That's the enemy, not our God. God is love. That behavior which is absent of self-interest and wholly occupied with another's gain. You know, if you look at that rainbow... There's a streak of color through it. It's always been there, and it's love. God is love. He is interested and wholly occupied 
with our benefit. It's just startling, hard to comprehend that this God, this magnificent, holy, righteous God, has not forsaken us. He has not justly cast us out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth for all eternity. He has condescended to wash our feet and to die the death that we deserved. Who is this God? He is. He is the great I am. He is Jehovah. He's always been this way. And we stand back in gaping awe and wonder. And we say, God, I'm so sorry I didn't know. I'm so sorry I've tried to make a golden calf in the image of what I thought a God should be like. But you are. And you always will be. And you are unchanging. And I delight in the fact that who you are is so good. He could have been anything. But he is good. He is right. He is just. He is love. He is mercy. He is holy, holy, holy. All at the same time. God is love. Just in case you didn't believe me. (laughs) For God so loved the world. What's his motive? You see, he's fulfilling it. He came to bring life that much more abundant. For God so loved the world. Why? It's a hard thing to explain. Why God would love us, even while we were yet sinners. What in the world? is wrong with God. Nothing's wrong with God. It's what's wrong with us because we would never do this. Our motive is different. Our motive is self. I would never leave my high and holy throne and come down. I wouldn't do that. I know you wouldn't. That's why you need to be saved. You need to be saved from your selfishness, your sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You sin, you die. You believe, you live. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Whoa. Even while we were yet sinners, he commended his love toward us and died for us. It's because his motive from the beginning has never altered. He is who he is. And his agenda is to bring life. The set motive of our God has been revealed. He was and is and is to come. He is eternal and unchanging. This is our short list. He is the word of God. He has made himself and his purposes known. He is holy. He has no darkness in him. He is perfectly otherly. He is righteous. There is no flaw in him. He is perfectly and legally just and right. He is love. He ever lives to bring us life even at his own expense. God is love. The cross. You know that the cross is the great centerpiece of all universal history. You know that the great rainbow and manifold wonder of God is never in any spot in history more perfectly revealed than in that event. First of all, you have God in person revealing the rainbow manifold wonder and character and behavior of God in Jesus. And then you have the action of perfect justice, perfect righteousness. Everything about the Messiah is fulfilled from all of the word of God up to that point, is fulfilled and canonized in Christ Jesus. Perfectly. He had to be betrayed. 
He had to be sold for 30 pieces of silver. His clothing had to be divided and separated. He had to cast lots for it. A spear, he had to be pierced in his side. His hands and his feet had to be pierced. All of it is fulfilled. All righteousness, all the word of God. He is, he always has been. He's in control even though he looks like the victim. He's the victor. Do we see this? Though our lens in the natural causes our God to maybe look feeble. Our God is. His people are in bondage for 430 years. How powerful do you think that God looks? However, it was that bondage which led them to cry out. And when you are in the bondage to the law of sin and death and you feel the weight upon your soul, what is it leading you to? It is setting you up for the deliverance that comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And where is that deliverance? It's at that cross. And the man, the God-man known as Jesus, who is eternal, by the way. He didn't just exist for 33 years. He's the one who created the heavens and the earth. That's what it says in John. He was always who he is. Just because we didn't see him until 2,000 years ago. We never touched him. We never saw him walk and interact in human form. Does not mean that his nature began or sprouted up. And the nature of God was redefined in Jesus. It was fulfilled, perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. This is an amazing revelation. The cross. The enunciation of his I amness. The word of God fulfilled. Holiness exemplified. Righteousness fulfilled, justice satisfied, punishment and wrath satiated. Love demonstrated. The rainbow is just there. You see, he's never altered. When he enters into covenant, he's just like, hey, I'm immutable and unchanging. I'm eternal. This is who I am. You're the one that's off. If anyone's violating this covenant, it's you, not me. We do not hold God in contempt. We do not correct our God. He corrects us. He is without flaw. He is the immutable, unchanging one. He is what is the definition of perfection. Not us. We humbly bend our knee before him, plant our face on the ground and say, you speak, I listen. What you say goes. Law. There's our word again. You're starting to warm up to it, aren't you? Some of you are like wanting to dance even when you see the word. It's like, law. I like law. Law is your friend. Well, at least the law that comes from God. You see, law leads us. It can't save us. It cannot enter the land of promise. Moses, the lawgiver, was not allowed to enter the land of promise. Joshua, the one that came after the law. The law led us, or Moses led us to Joshua. It's the same name for Jesus. The law leads us unto Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua, the man of salvation. But the law can't save us. Moses couldn't save the people. He couldn't deliver them into the full inheritance. Joshua must. The man that comes after the law. That's the one that can deliver us into the fullness. So law, that which sets forth God's eternal decree of what is perfect behavior, right action, and just consequence. More simply, that which reveals sin. Or the schoolmaster. Grace. God's loving and legal response to the failure on man's part to demonstrate perfect behavior, right action, and the measures God has taken to rescue us from the just consequences of our error. More simply, that which rescues from sin. More personably, Jesus. The law leads us unto grace. The one who can save us from our sin. 
the one who did save us from our sin. We are saved by what? By grace. Through what? Faith. By believing in the guaranteed behavior of our God and saying, I believe. And what happens? We live. Faith allows us to participate and to partake of the bountiful grace of God which rescues us from our deadened state, our sinful, justly condemned state. We are rescued from it and set apart from the systems of this earth, no longer friends with this world and that which is going to be judged, but now friends with God? This is astounding. This is why it's called good news, and the word good stinks compared to what it is. It's extraordinary, flabbergasting, bewildering, befuddling. We need bigger adjectives to describe it. It is the gospel. Law was not discarded in the offering of grace. It was fulfilled. Holiness was not discarded in the declaration of God's love. It was now made possible. You know that God says, technically you could say in his law, thou thou shalt be holy as I am holy. That's the eternal dictates of God. You have to be holy as I am holy. Have you ever tried to figure that one out? Tried to be holy? Tried to be otherly from this world? Completely not like the systems of this earth? Not having any speck of sin upon us? Being completely other like God? And we can't, but it's a command. How, does that, how is that command fulfilled? A holy father sends his holy child Jesus to this earth to, do the, to live a holy life in a depraved earth, untouched, unspotted, unblemished by the systems of this world to create a cloak, which then enables us into the presence of the holy, holy, holy one. And then what is given to us but the Holy Spirit to live within us? And what does the Holy Spirit do? It sanctifies us, which is the concept of making us holy. We are clothed in holiness, brought into the Holy Presence, and then given the Holy Spirit to enable us to actually live as God lives. Wow! It is now made possible. Righteousness was not discarded now that Jesus has expressed his mercies and kindnesses at the cross. Woo! I'm glad righteousness is no more. Oh. He has now enabled us to partake of his divine nature. He clothes us in his righteousness. In fact, if his righteousness isn't there, we're sunk. We are clothed in his righteousness so that we can come into the perfect righteous presence of God, which is the demands. That's what the law says. Unless you can keep this law with perfect perfection and be perfectly righteous, you have no access unto the Father. And so what does he do for us? He gives us his righteousness and clothes us in it so that we can enter into the presence of God. And what does he give us? He gives us the spirit of righteousness. He gives us himself, the righteous one, to enter into our bodies and now not just keep the law, but to showcase the nature of the divine in and through our behavior. I can't do this. I don't know about you. I need him. How can you have him? That's the cross. That's what grace is all about. God's nature is inviolable. That means it cannot be transgressed. God cannot, because a lot of us have these notions that God, imagine that he has 10 attributes, that he turns off this one and turns this one up really high over here. And then he, he goes, yeah, let's turn down that one, let's turn up this one. He never for one second violates any of his nature in any of his actions. He is 
He is unchanging, immutable. He cannot lie. There is never a point in time when he does lie. He never violates his law, which is why he's called righteous. He never violates his nature, which is why he can make bold statements to say, I do not lie. Well, how can we be sure? Because he's inviolable. He is God. Don't you remember the bow in the clouds? Don't you remember the manifold coloring of our God? Don't you remember that he's eternal and immutable, unchanging? He's never altered, and he's not going to alter in this situation, which is why he has a guaranteed behavior and why we can put confidence in him and have faith. Faith is based not upon a good feeling or a rush of emotion or a longing for God to be a certain way. It is based on the fact of who God is. He is, and I believe it. God's nature is inviolable. He was, is, and always will be the same. He did not turn off his hatred of sin. He still hates it with a vehemence. Whoa, isn't that an interesting meditation? You know that he still hates sin? He didn't turn that off. Suddenly it's like, oh boy, sin's fine now. He still hates sin, which is what the cross is all about. Do you think his son suffered in vain? The only reason we can walk in this life is because we have the clothing of Jesus. That is where our confidence lies. But the condemnation still hangs over the rebellious, over those that have not found their refuge in the work of the cross. He did not stop being holy and commanding us to be so as well. In other words, his command for us to be holy as he is holy still lingers in the air. It's still there. However, we believe we live. No longer are we under the law of sin and death. We are under the law of we believe and live. That's where we find our hope. Our walk of perfection may not be perfect. However, his was. And our confidence is not in our righteousness, it's in his. But that said, the God who is holy and righteous still indwells us to sanctify us and to change us and to grow us up. And he's like a father. My children are learning to walk, and if they fall, I don't kick them. I am bequeathing to them all my strength and all my grace so that they can learn to walk successfully. The same with us. We may stumble, but guess who we have? We have a father. We're clothed in the blood of Jesus. And he says, come here, let's keep going. He gives us his spirit and his grace to enable us onward. He did not cease from being perfectly righteous, just and a perfect and eternal punisher of sin. You know that he's still a punisher of sin? He is. Read your Bible. He did not quit opposing darkness. He did not take a break from having wrath toward all unrighteousness. But he also didn't quit being love. He didn't stop his rescuing grace. You know that that doesn't stop? He's eternal in that. His motivation is the same. He didn't cease being our intercessor, our captain of salvation. It says he ever lives to make intercession for us. It says he will save us to the uttermost. He's still motivated the same. The rainbow still hangs around the throne. He's inviolable, unalterable. He still is our captain of salvation. He still is our intercessor, not just 2,000 years ago, but today. He still stands for our benefit, for our life. He didn't quit offering the humble mercy, kindness, patience, and gentleness. His commands haven't changed. His holiness hasn't altered. His righteous demands are still perfect and impossible. It's still true that if we sin, we die. But it's also true that if we believe, we live. You choose which law you want to come under. You can try in your own strength to fulfill the law in your own ability. And that's called coming under the law. And if you do that, well, then the law dictates you sin, you die. Or you can put your confidence in his work. 
and come under what's called grace. And you say, I believe and therefore I live. Now when you look upon the cross, it doesn't mean that the holiness and the righteousness of God, you're exempt from it. However, you now have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you to enable you to make decisions that are different than you made before. You are given a new motive. Instead of your heart of stone, you are given a heart that is soft towards the things of heaven. You begin to hate what he hates and love what he loves. There's a renewal of the mind. You are altered. You are changed. And now your motive begins to be set towards the kingdom of heaven, to the glory of the king, to the giving of life to others. You are now a life giver, just as your God is. It's called Christianity. It's called conversion, which comes as a result of the law awakening a soul to its need of grace. Grace, the labor or the work of God to carry out the impossible errands of the Almighty. The law is still the law. The holiness of God is still the holiness of God. The righteousness of God is still the righteousness of God. Still, if you're struck on one cheek, you're supposed to turn to them the other also. Still, when you're persecuted, when you're suffering, when you're falsely accused, you're supposed to leap for joy and rejoice. Just to rejoice in all things, by the way. You're supposed to love. That's your uh, moniker as a Christian, as you love in all circumstances. They spit upon you and you embrace it. I don't know about you, but this is actually a higher law now. You see, the law that Jesus Christ brought, the law of love, is actually more impossible than the Old Testament law. It said, you not look at a woman lustfully, but, I'm sorry, you should not commit adultery, but if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Thank you, Jesus, that really helped. God is searching the innermost parts. He's not looking for external behavior. He's looking for an alteration of motive, an alteration of the center. And only he can change that. And it's changed by us beholding the cross, seeing our needs, seeing the blackness of the inner man, and saying, I need to be healed. I need to be changed. And there's only one thing that can change me, and I turn to that now. I turn to Jesus, and I believe in his work on the cross that it is sufficient for me, that his righteousness is my righteousness. And as a result, I have access unto the throne of grace. So grace is the labor of God to carry out the impossible errands of the Almighty. Now, most of us would look at grace as being at the cross. Well, it is. That is what the cross is. It's an enunciation. It's a work of grace. However, did you know that God's grace is a part of his rainbow? You know that his grace isn't just an event. His grace is an action. It's part of his motive. You know that he has grace for us today? It's called grace for help in time of need. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of times of need in my life where a bad attitude is brewing. When someone punches me in one side of the face and I'm not too inclined to turn in the other. What do I need for help in time of need? I need grace, which is inviolable and always a part of who God is. And if I'm in the righteousness of Christ, I have access unto the full measure of who he is for every circumstance. It said I have all things for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. Everything I need for life and godliness is in Christ Jesus, which I have because of believing upon the work of the cross. I have entered into the person of Christ and his blood, his rainbow of manifold glory surrounds me as a covenant shield and allows me entrance into the throne room of grace for help in time of need. That's how we live as Christians. 
The law brings us to the cross. The cross brings us to the throne. The throne then comes and dwells within us. And we, on two feet, carry the glory of Christ into this earth. The law is not our enemy. Let's allow the perfection, the righteousness, and the holiness of Almighty God to be a cheerleader unto our soul, to lead us unto the full majesty and glory of the person of Jesus. A short list of impossibles. Thou shalt be perfect as I am perfect. Thou shalt be holy as I am holy. Thou shalt love as I love. Thou shalt forgive as I forgive. Thou shalt be pure as I am pure. The two rules of grace. To clothe us in the just and satisfying work of the cross. And to infill us with the almighty purifying and transforming work of the Spirit. You don't just want what was at the cross, even though we do want what's at the cross. We want what is the outflow of the cross. Which is that this rainbow of covenant would be inviolable in our life even today. And that we would not dismiss the holiness and the righteousness of God in our behavior today. And nullify it and say it's of no effect because I have grace. Oh, God is still who he is. He's never altered in one degree. And though we have grace, let us not treat it as cheap grace. Let us not diminish the great work and the sufferings of Jesus Christ to allow us access unto the throne room of grace for help in time of need. We have the Spirit of God to enable us to live a life that otherwise we couldn't. So we do not diminish holiness and righteousness. We magnify it. But not in our own strength. It's not legalism. It's Christianity. We yield up this vessel and we say, God, you take it. I'm a mess. And he does take it. And he makes it his. The God of all grace. So God is... God is. God is the word of God. God is holy. God is righteous. God is love. And God is grace. God is the God of all grace. You're not going to get it from anywhere else. He's the God of it. He's the God of all grace, which is, by the way, something we all need. The set motive of our God has been revealed. He was and is and is to come. He is eternal and unchanging. This is our list again. He is the word of God, and he has made himself and his purposes known. He is holy, and he has no darkness in him. He is perfectly otherly. He is righteous. There is no flaw in him. He is perfectly and legally just and right. He is love. He ever lives to bring us life, even at his own expense. And he is grace. He personally is ever laboring to keep our feet from stumbling and to present us a pure and spotless bride, marked by his holiness, his righteousness, his purity, and his amazing love. That's not a bad ending. I don't know that the manifold wonder of law is the best title for that. It just happens to fit in the series. The manifold wonder of God is a far better title for that. It just happens to be that the law reveals the nature of God. But I'm, even in giving that message, standing in awe of the manifold wonder of God. And oh, for a thousand tongues to talk about it, to sing about it, and to shout about it. Good news is an understatement. This is amazing. And I hope that each one of us can freshly bask in the amazing wonder and work of the cross. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please, feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. 
If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.